Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. When people talk about the end times, the book of Revelation is one of the first things mentioned. And at this point in our study of the book of Revelation, we've come all the way to the end of the end times. You know, verse 8 in chapter 21, you know, it, it brings us to this invitation that God gives to those who are thirsty. He said, I'll give you of the water of life freely. Come. If you do, this will be your inheritance. I'll be your God. You'll be my son. If you don't, you'll be in the portion of the lake of fire. And so, the book, you would think this would be a good ending point, and yet the book doesn't end here with God's invitation to drink from the water of life that he offers. And so, as it moves on in verse 9, an angel pulls John aside to get a closer look at New Jerusalem, and as he does so, we're going to learn why it's so important that the prophet Isaiah promised Messiah would bring beauty for ashes. So, chapter 21, we pick it up in verse 9 of the book of Revelation. It says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. This is the same language that was used in chapter 17 when we took a two-chapter break from the chronology of Revelation to talk about the city of Babylon, you know? And, and that's been kind of the norm for the book of Revelation. Throughout the book of Revelation, we've had these side chapters, you know? We, we covered the sealed judgments in Revelation chapter 6, and then we had a side chapter 7 to explain some other things that were going on at the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Then we covered the trumpet judgments, and then after that had a few side chapters to explain some other things that were going on during the middle of the Great Tribulation. And then we covered the bold judgments, and then had two more side chapters on Babylon and its destruction during the last half of the Great Tribulation. So it makes sense that when chapters 19 through the beginning of chapter 21 cover the end of the tribulation to the beginning of eternity, that we would get another couple side chapters to talk about other things that are going on during that time period. And that's what we get here when we get to verse 9 of chapter 21. Just like the city of Babylon had been briefly mentioned a few times in Revelation and required a lengthier teaching, so the New Jerusalem has been briefly mentioned up to this point only. Thus, our final side topic um, deals with tons of details about our future home. And so this angel who had been one of those who had poured out the bold judgments upon the earth, he says he talked with John saying, come hither. Up to this point, John has been a passive bystander uh, the last few chapters. He repeatedly says things like, I heard, I saw. But the angel now is going to take him somewhere new like he did with Babylon, except this time the view is going to be a lot nicer. Instead of seeing the great whore and the beast that she rode upon, now he's going to see the new Jerusalem, our future home. But he says to him, I'm going to show you, first off, not the new Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to show you the bride, the lamb's wife. The word shoe here, it means to explain the character or the significance of something. I'm going to explain the character or the significance of the bride, the lamb's wife. 
Now, the word here for bride, it can be used for a woman who is either about to be married or a woman who has just recently been married, you know. Uh, we use that term for both, you know. After the, the service is over, we still call her the bride. We, we say now the, the father of the bride is going to dance with the bride. You know, we still call her that even though she's married now. So the word can be used for both. I, to this day, still call my wife my bride, you know, uh, because it's always as if we had just gotten married, Right? Yeah, you can use that too, guys. <laughs> it is always as that. That's why I say that, because I want her to, th- know, to know that, you know? It's still exciting. Well, the fact here it mentions that she's the lamb's wife, it shows us which one it is. It's not before the wedding, it's after the wedding, right? Now, I bring this up because Revelation 22, 21 verse 2, it describes the new Jerusalem as similar to a bride adorned for her husband. And because of that, many mistakenly say, well, the city's the bride here. It's symbolic of the bride of Christ. That is not the case at all. The city is the home of the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And so what the angel is going to show John here in greater detail is what everyday life will be like for the bride of Christ shortly after the wedding feast. I'm going to explain to you the significance, the character, what it's going to be like to be the bride of Christ after the wedding feast is over at the start of the millennial kingdom. Now, There are those, of course, who look at this passage and they will say, well, this refers to the new heaven, the new earth. Um, I would say, no, the new Jerusalem, it's our experience, the moment we're raptured. And when it comes out of heaven, it comes out of, we don't leave the new Jerusalem and then get to go back to it when God creates the new heaven and the new earth. Um, I believe this is referring to our experience, the moment that the, the wedding feast is over, and this is our experience for all eternity after that. It's fine if someone disagrees with me. Again, no one's going to be disappointed if we're wrong about that. The idea here is, is this is what the life is going to be like for us. Verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city. The angel carries John to this place, this new location. It's an unidentified mountain, but it's a massive mountain, and it gives John a vantage point to have a good perspective of this humongous city. And he says, what I saw was this city descending. I saw the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending from out of heaven. That's what that word out of means. It actually means from out of heaven, from God. So, Very early into Jesus' 1,000-year reign, what appears here is God is going to open heaven just like he did in Revelation 6, and New Jerusalem will emerge. Now, some suggest that the New Jerusalem will orbit the earth or hover in the atmosphere somewhere. Others say, well, no, it descends all the way to the earth. There's a challenge if it descends to the earth. The problem is is it's half the size of the United States. Um, Now, I do understand from a reading of the book of Revelation from prophecies in Isaiah that land masses will be drastically altered during the judgments of the great tribulation. So that might not be a problem. You know, we might go back to Pangea again where it's all just one big landmass. Maybe it's not a problem. I don't know. I'm not claiming to know. Those who say, though, that John is seeing the new Jerusalem when it descends from out of heaven to the new earth, they're saying, no, this is the new earth, not the millennium, they would say this proves the new earth will be massively larger than our current planet. Maybe so. We can't know for sure because no more details are given about whether it hovers or whether it lands. It just tells us it comes out from heaven. So you have to be there to find out the answer. 
We are, however, while not given those details, we are given great detail as to what the city looks like. Verse 11, it says, it has, it possesses the glory of God. And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So the first thing we learn about this city is it's really shiny. It's really shiny. The word there, glory, it means brightness, radiance, splendor. It has the brightness, the radiance, the splendor of God. The reason it does is because Revelation 21.3 explained that God the Father's presence will be inside the city. That's what causes it to shine. And it shines, it says here, like unto a stone most precious, like a valuable gem or jewel. And then it compares it, it says, even like a jasper stone, clear like crystal, shining like crystal. Jasper is a translucent red stone, so I don't know if it's a red shine. Um, We already saw that God's um, throne was described with that same glory, this reddish glow. I don't know if that's the case. Um, We saw that in Revelation 4.3. I don't know if that's the case here. I don't know if John's just finding a stone that's approximate to what he sees because he doesn't know exactly what it's like. Maybe he's seeing something he's never seen before here. But the idea is it's really, really shiny. Verses 12 and 13 describe its wall and gates. It had a wall, great and high. It had 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. On the east side, three gates. On the north side, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. So we see it has a wall that's going all around. And in addition, each side of this city has three entrances, three gates that you can come in through it. Now, on these gates, it says at the gates, but the word at is actually upon, a P in the Greek. So upon the towers of these gates, it says there are 12 angels. So each one has an angel serving there as a sentry, keeping watch. You know, we live in a world that's increasingly becoming less safe. Do you know that? New Jerusalem is a place you will always feel safe. Its walls will keep it from being exposed. Angels watch over it from the top of these gate towers. You will never, ever feel unsafe in this city. Now, maybe you're like me and you wonder, why would angels need to be there as centuries if Jesus is reigning and righteousness covers the earth like water covers the sea? Why do do we need guards? Why does it even need walls? Well, we have to remember something very important. John is seeing these things while he's still living in a world where he's very exposed to danger. John had been ripped from his home. He's on the island of Patmos in exile. He's very much exposed to danger. In fact, so is every Christian who's going to receive in the churches that are going to receive this book when it's done and John sends it off. Jesus said, send this to the seven churches. Every one of those churches had experienced persecution. They were in danger. They were exposed. They were not living in a safe place. Guys, Revelation is written for our benefit now not when we experience these things, you know? It's not when we're there, we'll go, oh, cool, let's read about it. No, we'll be there. It's written for our benefit now. So the point of knowing that there's walls and there's angels guarding it is so that when you look around and you don't feel safe today, you can know this, that there's coming a day when you will never feel afraid. Amen? Isn't that good news? There is coming a day when you will never, ever feel unsafe. 
And I look forward to that. It also mentions here that there are names written on it, these gates, each of the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And it, it gives us the impression that there's one name per gate, but it could be all 12 on every gate. We don't know. But the reason the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel on these gates is because this is also the home of all resurrected saints, not just the church. Israel, all of saved Israel is going to live on forever in their forever home with, our, with us in our forever home after this earth is destroyed. And so their names of those 12 tribes are written on each gate. Then we get to verse 14, and it tells us about the foundations. It says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The verb form of the word used here for foundations means to settle, to settle. New Jerusalem is no temporary home. It's not like the, your first apartment, you know, when you first get married. It's so strange today. You know, I, 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 sometimes I talk to people who are about to get married, and they're like, like everything, they got to have everything right away, you know? Like everything's got to be perfect. They got to have all the right furniture and they got to have the right comb. And, you know, I say, well, why don't you, why don't, you know, why don't you guys just get this apartment? You're like, no, no, we have to have everything just so. And I think you're going to be bored in two months. Your life, marriage is about building life together. It's about accomplishing things together, you know? You know, it, it's about being a team, Right? I remember the very first time me and Bev got to a place financially where we could bargain with one another. I remember being out and, and she had seen this dining room table that she like, we just replaced this table just, I don't know, what, a few months ago. And, and, and she loved it and it would be perfect for the, when our family grew and because it had this thing in the middle and you could open it up and, and it was great. And she's like, honey, I, I want this. And I was like, you know that big screen TV I've been talking about? I said, we can do this if, you know, let's, let's work together here, right? We're one flesh, right? You know, <laughs> on the same page, working together, you know? No, but you understand the point. We're, we were building something. We're building a life together, you know? That's what makes it exciting. You know, you, we didn't stay in our very first studio apartment that we lived in for the first year of our marriage. We didn't stay in the home that we were in, you know, the, the rental home that we had for the next year of our marriage, you know? And, and we didn't stay in the very first home we built. You know, we were working towards something. And, and when you're working towards something, you, you do that in your mind. You think, well, we're going to stay here because we're not going to stay here forever. Well, New Jerusalem's not like that. That's the end game, you know? New Jerusalem's the end game. That's, that's the goal, you know, where you want to get to. It's not a temporary home. Foundations speak of permanence and stability, a forever home. Guys, even if you, you, you get to your end game here or you achieve your goals here, nothing in this life promises permanency. Nothing. You know, it's almost like the angel is, you know, he's showing John these things that he's saying to him, I, I know you were ripped from your home, John. I, I know you were exiled to that island. That's not your home. Someday, John, you will have a forever home. And so will every other believer. Tell this story. Guys, remember that when your life is full of instability. Remember that when it doesn't seem like there's any foundations because that instability won't last forever. It can't last forever because the life you have in this city is what's going to last forever. It also mentions here that in these foundations are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Ephesians uh, 2, 19 through 22 tells us, you can look at all the verses. I'm just gonna read a couple of them. 
this morning. But it says, now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household, the family of God. You've been brought into the family of God. And you are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The reason that you and I believe today is because 12 men, these 12 men bore witness to Jesus' resurrection. And, and the word of that witness was passed on to us. They laid the foundation of the scriptures. We don't need to hear new things from God. It's all here. These guys laid the foundation for us. And so there are no new inspired men out there. This is the word of God. It's our foundation, the church. It's our foundation. This is, this is where we stand. This is what we run to when things are unstable right now. We look back, we say, this is my foundation. And the foundation of God stands sure. Heaven and earth will indeed pass away, but not God's word. That's what Jesus said. As we see that foundation here with their names on it, it reminds us of that. It's a reminder to struggling Christians and to us that the scriptures always remain and that we're to cling to them firmly when things around us are shaky. We're to cling to them always. People debate and they say, well, well which, who's the 12th guy? It's clearly not Judas. You know, who's on there? Is it Matthias? Is it Paul? I'll let you guys duke it out in the lobby. So, I don't know. I don't care. I don't. Because I don't need to know that. It just tells me that those who passed it on, it got to me. And I've got a foundation. And I'll have a foundation then too. So I'm good. Verse 15. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lies four square, and the length of it is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. So here we see its shape and its size. Um, this mentions here lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And then in the end of verse 16, the height is equal as well to those lengths. So the city is a, a perfect cube. It's a, it's a perfect cube. Uh, just like the Holy of Holies, by the way. The place where God dwelt in the tabernacle was a perfect cube. That was its measurements. And that's because this becomes the Holy of Holies. It becomes the place where God's presence is. Same exact thing. It was portraying God's throne room. This will become God's new throne room. And as we read later, you know, the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and they'll see his face. Now, 12 furlongs is just under 1,400 miles. And if we could put the picture up there, if we take the measurements of the New Jerusalem and we put them up on the screen, if we do. There we go. That's the size of the city. That's massive. No, massive is not even the right word. Ginormous. Now, some suggest the entire length of the city is what is in mind. So it's like 3,000 furlongs on each side. But even that is still 350 miles squared. That's just a bit larger than the entire state of Florida. So Either way you shake it out, this is a massively huge city. And because of that, this has led some Bible students to conclude, well, the city must be symbolic because it's ridiculous to think of such a massive city actually existing, to which I would 
respectfully reply, putting limitations on what God can do is a poor basis for Bible interpretation. Is it nigh impossible for our minds to grasp a city of that size? Yeah. I mean, I know some of you guys who are scientists, you know, your brain's working and you're thinking to yourself, if this thing comes into our atmosphere, it would like send us out of orbit. I mean, I get it. I'm, I'm not saying I understand how it works. I'm just telling you, there are many other things in Scripture that are hard for me to wrap this thing around. The fact that exact measurements are given in the Scripture is a far greater argument for literal interpretation than symbolic. Why not just say, it's huge? (laughs) You know, I mean, seriously, you know, it's really, really big, but not really because it's symbolic. I think the point is, is that whether it's 12,000 furlongs per side or 3,000 furlongs per side, There's enough room for everybody. I think that's the point. He's just made an invitation, right? Come. If you're thirsty, come drink of it freely. There's enough room for everyone. God is willing that no man perish. Overpopulation and overcrowding aren't issues for him. His love is so vast it made space for all who would answer his call to come. Now, it mentions here in verse 17, the wall also is measured. He measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits. A cubit is, is technically from the, either the point of the elbow or this you know, other side here to the middle finger. And that generally is around 18 inches, a foot and a half. And different cultures had different measurements, but it's right around there, generally speaking. And so um, here it mentions that the wall is either that tall. It doesn't tell us. It's either measured tall or width-wise. It's either 216 feet high, roughly, or 216 feet thick. Now, because the Bible tells us that its wall is great and very high, this would be a very short wall compared to the 12,000 furlong size of the city. You know, it'd be like a mini wall. You know, it uh, it would not really be much of a wall. Uh, So, I think it's more likely that it's how thick the wall is. And there's this little last part here that's created some weird doctrines out there. It mentions that the length, the, I'm sorry, verse 17, that the measurement, he measured it according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And so some people have decided, well, angels are the same size as human beings. Um, that's not at all what's going on here. Uh, John is saying that the angel gave measurements based on the human measurement of a cubit, not angelic measurements. And that makes sense because this is a home for people, not angels. It's our home, not their home. And that's what John's pointing out. It can be your home if you'll repent, if you will come and take of the water of life. Now, verse 18, it says, And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished. The word there, garnished, it means beautified, decorated, with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, a chalcedony, the fourth, an emerald, the fifth, sardonyx, the sixth, sardius, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, a topaz, the tenth, a chrysoprasis, the eleventh, a jacinth, the twelfth, an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. 
We start here with the wall in verse 18. All these things are beautified. It says the building of the wall, the building material, the construction material, what it was made of was of jasper. Again, this translucent red stone. And it mentions that, uh, and specifically that, uh, that idea that it's translucent, that you can not see through it. You can see through it. It's not like it's all clear. It's not like you can look through 216 feet of jasper and be like, hey, Bob, you know. Uh, but, but you can see things through it. It's translucent, not clearly, not like a window per se. And then it also mentions here that the city, what building material is used for it? It says pure gold, like unto clear glass or sparkling glass, shining glass, something like that. Now, I'm not a I'm not a metallurgist. I'm not a I'm not a I'm not a, a, a scientist on the elements, you know. And so I, I don't want to pretend to try to understand what it is mean what what John means here by pure gold. Um, I do understand, though, from research I've done that uh, even if you beat gold to like super thin, it still doesn't turn translucent. Um, gold just doesn't work that way. Um, they have been able to, you know. Uh, do something to gold where it evaporates into, uh, you know, like a, like a film and whatever, and then you could put it on top of something and they can make that translucent. For example, the astronauts who went to the moon, their, their uh, visors are, the reason they're golden is because that's what they did with that. Um, and so you can do that per se, I guess, you know, so I don't know if angels are up there like, you know, spray painting, you know, the new Jerusalem uh, with this gold. Um, but, but what I would suggest here rather than that uh, is that this is very likely a metal that doesn't exist on earth. Because gold is not just, you can't really make it translucent or clear like crystal, uh, but gold, last I checked, is poor building material. We don't tend to build things. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to get mad and hit the wall, but if you do that to gold, it's soft. It's going gonna, it's gonna to dent. I think this is something that we haven't seen on earth before. And I think John, I'll read you a quote by one commentator. He said, what John saw here was so utterly and incomprehensibly beautiful that these were the closest words he could find to convey the vision. God's infinite power for beauty and creativity means that he can transcend the rules of our existence. And I love this last part of the quote. He says, such a city has no place for atheistic rationalism that would slather concrete over its shining gold walls. Isn't that interesting? You know, if we were going to make a practical city, listen, you know, you know you're sitting there with the angels and you're plotting, you know, Jesus is like, listen, I want to make a really, you know, a, a great place for my bride. They're going to spend all eternity in this, you know. What do we do? He said, like, man, we got to make it functional. We got to make it, you know, functional. We got to make it, you know. And, and if you did that with this city, you wouldn't beautify it. You, 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 you would put concrete everywhere. You would make sure it was sturdy. You'd make sure it could last. You'd put copper wiring everywhere. You'd make all these things to make sure everything worked flawlessly. And it would look dead. God, <laughs> he creates something here, something new, something beautiful. And you know, reading about something that doesn't yet exist in our world makes it hard to picture, doesn't it? But it does sound wonderful. I love what Pastor Joe Foch said. He said, you'll know what eyeballs are for when you get to this place, <laughs> Right? You'll know what eyeballs are for when you get to this place. You'll be like, man, yeah. 
So the wall, it's this beautiful, translucent thing. The city itself is this material, this pure gold that John mentions. Shining. Verse 19, the foundations are listed here. There, there's some debate as to whether it's uh, like 12 layers, like one two, on top of each other, 12 layers of foundation all around the city, or if it's like three distinct you know, sections of foundation on each side. You know, so you got, you know, you got like Peter here, you know, with his little purple, you know, gemstones, whatever. And then you got, you know, uh, you know, Matthew here, and then you've got Nathaniel here, and then you come around the side, and you got Bartholomew, and I'm running out of apostle names. And uh, <clears throat> I lean toward it being three on each side, three separate sections, like a multicolored, different colors on everything, but we can't know for sure. It mentions that each of these individual sections is beautified or decorated by a specific valuable gemstone. The bottom of this wall that goes around the entire city, it just shines with greens and blues and pinks and purples and yellows and all sorts of other colors from these various gems. (laughs) If we didn't know already that there was no pain in the New Jerusalem, the city would need one of those seizure warnings, you know? And then in verse 21, we get to the gates. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate, each one of these many gates, these 12 gates from one pearl. The largest pearl that humanity ever verified weighed 76 pounds. And uh, ladies, if you're wanting one of those, you need to tell your hubby to start saving now. I don't know how high these gates are, but no creature on earth is large enough to create a pearl of the size required to make one of those gates. I don't think there's 12 ginormous clams in heaven just waiting to be farmed, you know? You know? You know I, don't, I don't think Michael's up there checking. He's like, yeah, not big enough yet, you know? Again, this is more of God's supernatural creation at work here. And then it mentions the main street. The street of the city was, again, this material that we have never seen before, this pure gold like it were transparent glass, just like the buildings inside the city. We talk about the streets paved with gold, this main street that runs through the city. It comes from every entrance, and that's why we call it the streets of gold. The whole place is just beautiful. Now, we could go on. But I would like to pause here before we finish off the rest of John's description of this city to ask what I think is an important question, maybe even one you've been pondering. But when you read through this, it can at least easy for me when I first read through it to think to myself, well, I mean, that's nice, you know, but like, is it, is a shining city really something to get excited about? I mean, most of us, you know, if we, you know, you go and you see lights or you see something, you know, and, you know, oh, that's cool, it looks pretty. You go see it once and then you move on to real life again, right? Like, we would look at this, I think, many times in our culture and we would say, well, this is cool. And then, well, what's next? So, is a shining city really something to get excited about for all eternity? The answer is yes, and for two reasons. First off, it shows us that beauty and creativity are important to God. Why is that important? 
Well, first off, I, I realize that some of us are more creative than others and that some of us appreciate creative beauty more than others. If, if, if we're going to go to an art, art exhibit, me and my wife, one of us is going to enjoy that experience more than the other, you know? You know, on the other hand, um, if uh, I were to, in a previous time with all, all the politics, go to a basketball game, I would enjoy certain parts of the artwork that's going on there as the backdoor pass comes in into the, you know, slam-a-jamma, you know, whatever, you know. <laughs> I, I would appreciate that probably a little bit more than maybe someone who doesn't understand the game of basketball so much. I'd appreciate the screens that were set to make that happen. It's a thing of pure beauty. So I, I realize that some of us are more creative than others, and some of us cre- appreciate creative beauty more than others as well. But because God is the author of beauty and creativity, this means that our appreciation for beauty and creativity isn't something unique to us. We didn't start that. It's part of being made in God's image. Why is that important? Well, if God created us in His image, it means it's important to Him that we understand that it's important to Him. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 2, it states that, we, uh, it, states that it commands the, the, the Israelites when they're making the high priest's garments. It says, make them exactly this way. And then it says this, for beauty and for holiness. Now, on the one hand, we understand the holiness part. We understand that if he goes there in his own righteousness, he's a crispy critter, Right? You can't come before God in your own righteousness, so you got to have all these garments on. you got to have on this breastplate and all these things that have been, you know, sprinkled with the blood of the offerings that you come not in your own holiness, but in gifts, clothing that's been given from God. But that's not the only reason they were made. They were made for beauty as well. Now, since God cares about beauty and creativity, and we being in God's image create beautiful things now, my question is this, why would that change in perfection? Why would that all of a sudden become different in perfection? Listen, the only thing that will be different in eternity is that no one will use that creativity to make wicked things. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it states that we are God's poema, His work of art, and that He created us to live out the good works that He ordained for us to do. And we say, God loves you and He has a plan for your life. Does that plan stop at the rapture? Like, you know, you get to heaven, you're like, oh, this is awesome, Lord, that's great, what next? And He's like, nothing, that's it, you're done. <laughs> but God, you said He had a plan for life. I know, it's done, it's done, pull up a chair. Here's your harp in a cloud. And, and, but sometimes we are given that impression. If in creating you, God gave you a gift for music or art or architecture or something else I haven't mentioned, he's not going to remove that in eternity. You know, it's not like, you know, some of the folks here that have great voices when they get to heaven are just going to be like, uh, you know. You know, we're not going to just all of a sudden all sing with one voice. That sounds like a, a creepy apocalyptic movie, not heaven. He wants you to perform good works with those gifts for all eternity. He's planned for you to do those things for all eternity. In fact, Ephesians 2.7 talks about how he will be showing us his kindness for all eternity. 
If that's the case, then why would we limit the good works that God has for us to only our pre-rapture experience if the context of Ephesians 2.10 is Ephesians 2.7? We shouldn't. So why is a shiny city really something to get excited about? Because it's just the tip of the iceberg of the creativity and the beauty that God has for us for all eternity of the things that he'll have for you to do in all eternity. And the second reason is because beauty is one of the ways that God blesses us. God uses the word beauty all throughout Scripture to refer to the blessings that he graciously bestows upon us. In Revelation 21.2, it explains that New Jerusalem is a gift from God. It comes from out of heaven from God. And when we consider the words of the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61, if you'll turn there with me, I'd like to close with this thought. It's a long thought, so I'm not done yet. Don't want to deceive you. Pastors do that all the time. And for my closing thought, and 10 minutes later, or in my case, 14 minutes later, You know, we sang the song this morning, and this is what I love about the Lord. I didn't, I didn't tell Justin, hey, pick a song about beauty for ashes. We've got two of them, you know, today, because that's the Lord. I, this was not even, I don't normally do this, but I, I had, didn't have Isaiah 61 in my sermon. And last night, right about midnight, God put on my heart. I said, hey, I want to talk about this, because he wants you to hear this. He wants you to understand something in his word. Beautiful promise. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give them beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. We love that verse, right? We talk about it. We talk about the blessing of that's what God's going to do in my life. But what's the context of this verse? Well, the context is verses 1 and 2. Jesus, we know what's being referred to here because Jesus was given this scroll, this part of the scroll of Isaiah, when he was reading in the synagogue in Nazareth, right? And he opened up the scroll and he began to read and he did something very unrabbi-like. He stopped in the middle of a verse. Bad Rabbi Jesus said this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed up the scroll and he said, this day these words are fulfilled in your ears. What? Jesus was saying, the Messiah is here, the Messiah has come. I'm going to do all those things now. Now, when John the Baptist was in prison and he was getting a little bit discouraged and he was thinking, Jesus, you haven't broken me out yet. You know, what's going on here? And so he sends one of his disciples. He said, hey, ask Jesus. You know, hey, are you the one we should look for? Get me out, you know? Are you the one we should look for or are we looking for somebody else? And what did Jesus say to him? Tell John what you see. And then everything here, the blind see right? The poor hear the gospel preached to them. Everything listed here. This is what Jesus did in his first coming. Why does he stop halfway through the verse? Because the rest of it is what he does in his second coming. Look at the rest of it. Not only to proclaim the acceptable year, year of the Lord, but and the day of the vengeance of our God. 
That's what we've been studying in the book of Revelation, right? The day of the vengeance of our God. And what happens after Jesus brings that? He comforts all that mourn. He appoints unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes. This is how God blesses us. After all the ashes of everything that comes before, Jesus fixes it. And do you know what the word beauty means here? <laughs> it's crazy. It means a fancy hat. That's what it means. A fancy hat instead of ashes. What did they do when they were in mourning in the Middle East? They would take ashes and heap them on top of their heads and then they would sit in those ashes, ashes and just heap them on their heads to show something bad happened. Something bad happened. And so as we look at the world today and we see all the bad things that are happening and now it will coalesce in the great tribulation and mankind's rebellion against God bringing themselves to the, the brink of extinction and Jesus comes back. He's gonna take all those ashes he's, just, uh, he's gonna put something else on our head, a fancy hat. It means a nice turban, a tiara. The idea here is, is it's, it's a gift from God, something beautiful that you walk around in instead of all the ashes. You see, beauty in the scriptures, it speaks of God's blessings, God's gracious gifts to us. And our new home, this new Jerusalem, it's gonna be like an eternal gift giving. It's like every day you get a new hat from God, you know? Every day you get this gift from God when you look up and you see this thing because every day it will serve as an eternal reminder of God's love and his grace towards us and that it will never, ever fail because that city won't ever stop shining. There will be never be days of you throwing ashes on your head in heaven. There'll never be dry seasons like today where we have to trust God even when we don't see his goodness, we don't see his love, but we trust it. There'll be no days that will cause you to have to trust it because everywhere around you it'll be clearly known and obvious. It'll just be goodness. It'll just be his love everywhere. And when put that way, I'd say this shiny city is something I'm really excited about. Are you? Are you? You know, as the team comes up and we get ready to close, if you're here this morning and you, you don't have a relationship with Christ, you've not repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ as your Savior, if that's never happened in your life, you don't have a promise of beauty. You have a promise of ashes. And, and, and if you have... A, if you've lived any amount of life, you understand that life, even if you've had a good life, it has moments of ashes. This is the only promise, only promise that ends in beauty. Anything else the world promises you, even if they say you can be rich or you can be, you know, you can, you can have all the possessions you want or you can have fame, fortune. I mean, everything we could fill in the blank. Whatever it is you want most, it's gonna end in ashes. You'll end in ashes, and it will end in ashes at some point in time. This is the only thing that promises in the end there's beauty. And so if you've never done that, come on board. God is offering to you the water of life freely in Christ. So let's all stand.
Lord, we think of how you have beautified us already and that you've clothed us in your righteousness. You've made us in Christ, seated us in heavenly places in Christ. And, and yet, Lord, we do experience those ashes still. We are still living in that, that, that period before you've returned to give us beauty for ashes where you fix everything and there are no more ashes. And so, Lord, we want to fix our minds this morning on that shining city. Lord, that eternal reminder that we will be surrounded someday by your goodness and grace. We'll always be aware of it. Lord, that there'll never be ashes there, only beauty. So, Lord, in the meantime, would you... Give us an unction in our hearts. Give us a, a, a compelling in our hearts by your spirit, God, to take others with us, to share the goodness of this beautiful city, our future home that can be theirs as well. I pray you'd baptize us anew and afresh in your spirit. Give us boldness to share our faith, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.